There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the third episode in a special limited series of podcasts from the DSR Network. No issue is more important to the world than climate change. Later this year, world leaders will gather in Dubai for COP28, the most important international summit at which critical climate issues are discussed. This series of podcasts will look at crucial issues to be discussed at COP28 from the perspective of leading experts from around the world. Each of the podcasts will feature elements from a series of five live expert roundtables we convene to explore the road to COP28 and beyond. Each of the roundtables will be hosted by highly regarded leaders from the climate and international affairs communities. The discussions are presented as they happened, live and without editing. We were very fortunate to have as the chairperson for our second roundtable discussion, Fritz Meyer, the Dean of the Joseph Korbel School of International Studies. This series of programs has been sponsored in part by a grant from the UAE Embassy in the United States. The UAE is the host nation for COP28. However, it should be noted for this, as for all DSR Network podcasts, all content is completely editorially independent, and each of the independent chairpeople of the roundtables have been solely responsible for the direction and substantive focus of the discussions. Now, on to the discussion from the second roundtable in our special series created for the Road to COP28. Hello, everyone. I'm Fritz Mayer, the Dean of the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Uh, our my pleasure to be moderating this panel discussion today uh, about green growth, one of the topics uh, that will be on the table at the COP28, now not too far away. Uh, and green growth is a phrase that we hear a lot, um, certainly a favorite of politicians. And so our goal today is to explore what that might mean, what its possibilities are, what its contradictions might be, um, and what might be on the table at the, at the COP. Um, so let's just jump. Let's just jump right in. I um, uh, I'm going to start with with uh, Robert Mendelson. Um, um, Robert is the Edward uh, Weyerhaeuser Davis Professor of Forest Policy and Professor of Economics at Yale University, uh, leading environmental econ economist uh, with uh, an emphasis on valuing the environment. Uh, including such things as coral reefs and old growth forests, um, industries such as timber, agriculture, and energy, um, prolific author. Uh, Robert, economists think in terms of trade-offs often. And so let me let me ask you, so the big question here uh, is, can we have our cake and eat it too? Uh, is uh, green growth uh, possible? Well, green growth certainly is possible. Uh, what it generally means to, to most, most people is, is environmental uh, economic growth with less environmental damage. So that's generally what people think of when they think of green growth. Uh, but in the narrow definition of what COP's interested in, it, it would be economic growth with less carbon emissions or less greenhouse gas emissions. 
So the idea that we can do less greenhouse gas emissions is certainly possible. The idea that it might cost us something is what economists generally do predict. And it, I think the general uh, assumption in, in economics is that the more emissions you try to reduce, the more it's going to cost. So that is a trade-off, as you just pointed out. Uh, and one of the things that's, that's perfectly available to society is you can choose along that trade-off, however far you want to go. And so one of the questions that I guess we're going to be talking about is how far do we want to go? Um, and the, obviously the, the natural sciences would prefer we went a long way. Uh, a lot of people who are less concerned about the environment want us to go just a short way. But, but that's, that's one of the big topics of debate is just how far do you go with green growth? How much do you press it? We'll come back to those themes for sure. Um, let me introduce uh, Laura Garrett, um, longtime science writer, um, uh, winner of uh, uh, both the Peabody, the Polk, and the Pulitzer Prizes for her writing, uh, mostly on health uh, uh, issues, um, but a longtime observer of the way in which the global s system, I suppose, has responded to, to health crises. And I'm curious from your perspective, as we lead up to the COP, how you think about the possibilities and the and the and the way in which the international system is executing this green growth agenda. Thanks, Fritz. I'm going to jump right from what Robert was just saying because I think we're in a kind of time of crisis of credibility coming out of the COVID pandemic uh, with huge doubts across the whole planet about how well anybody performed, any government performed. The, the equity, the lack of equity and access to the tools for COVID, it has soured the global political climate quite seriously. And certainly inside the United States, it's had a similar impact. So we're coming up on COP28, and there's really quite a profound credibility issue of greenwashing versus green power, uh, especially with Sultan Al-Jabbar, the CEO of Abu Dhabi Petroleum, acting as the chair and UAE as the host of the COP28, there is a profound sense that the um, forces of fossil fuel production are trying to subvert the entire process. And so when you look at uh, anything that has to do with the possibility of averting what has been referred to as the gobsmackingly bad summer we've had here in the Northern Hemisphere, and the profound melt rates of both the Antarctic and Arctic um, and of glacial systems across the world. Um, I, I think that anything to do with green power that doesn't address that 71% of CO2 emissions currently come from 100 companies, all of them fossil fuel producers or plastics manufacturers, um, the credibility gap will be so vast if you can't take on the 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 high profit mega producers that it i think will be very hard to convince the average citizen just as it was hard to convince them to wear a mask or convince them to get vaccinated or convince them not to cough on a stranger in a subway i think we have a profound credibility crisis well we'll come back again to those themes uh, for sure the uh, whether we can convince people to act uh, in in time. Uh, thank you for that. Let me let me turn to uh, uh, Karen O'Neill. She's an associate professor at the Rutgers School of Environmental and Biological Sciences and sociologist who studies policies about land and water. How land policy how policies about land and water affect uh, government power, the status of experts, and well being of various social groups. Um, written a lot on 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 uh, impacts on coastal regions, and and as I read your work, uh, somewhat more critical take on on growth and the need to perhaps to think in other terms. Um, I don't know. I think I'm going to be consistent with uh, both Robert and Laurie in saying that um, uh, the promises uh, have to be lined up with uh, reasonable expectations. Um, and a couple of just a couple of things that I would point out is that uh, the environmental movement uh, and its conservation in particular has always had to straddle this issue. 
Um, if you look at the origins of conservation, conservation ideal was to produce sustainable yields in fisheries, forests, and the like. Um, and I think uh, if you look at that sort of rhetoric, I, part of it is that legacy, but also the other part is um, the idea about the uh, sustainable development goals that have been emerging, you know, for years uh, since the Rio conference, um, especially. And I think uh, some of this is signaling. Uh, so growth can't be denied to the um, what we used to call a developing country, you know, the global south. Uh, so how do we deal with that problem while addressing uh, the issues that, uh, you know, the proportionality uh, that uh, I think Lori and Robert have bo both pointed out. I mean, in the end, the effects of climate change are quantitative. And the, the green growth initiatives that have been proposed are often around the margins. So that's, I think, um, I think, I think consistent with what the other two have said. So um, the the issue is also in the back of my mind is that we know that we're looking ahead toward population decreases. Uh, they're already happening in the global north, and we're uh, starting to see them in the global south. Uh, we uh, at what point are we going to sustain all of this infrastructure and all of this investment that we've made in the old world? Mm. Thank you for that. I certainly want to come back to these questions about the uh, equity issues in the global system and the, the impacts on the global south. Um, let me turn to uh, questions about a little bit about uh, um, the pace of change. Um, um, uh, recently, New York Times had a, a, a article that uh, the title was uh, "Is the Green Energy Future is Arriving Faster Than You Think." Um, and it was kind of a very positive take on, at least in the United States, of the speed with which we are electrifying the um, uh, transportation and other adopting uh, solar and wind power, et cetera. Um, and yet there's still a lot of um, dirty growth out there. Um, uh, let me let me turn to you, uh, Mark, uh, to Mark Maslin. Mark, Mark uh, is the professor of Earth System Science at the Department of Geography at University College London, um, an expert on um, really the, both the history and the current uh, global ch clim climate change and uh, and its effects on the global ca climate uh, carbon cycle, biodiversity, rainforests, and human evolution. Um, uh, I noticed you've sold uh, your 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 uh, uh, climate change a very short introduction has sold uh, sixty thousand copies, which um, this is a very prolific group of writers, but that may that may be the the record there. But Mark, um, um, you've written about solutions that are needed and and and, um, and but also breakthroughs that we need. Is is is, is innovation happening as fast as we need it to happen? So I think the first thing to realize is that the green economy is already here. Um, if you look at all the metrics, the green economy is worth about $10 trillion per year. So that means one in $10 around the world is spent in the green economy, however you define that. If we look at the US, it's about nine and a half million jobs are in the green economy, compared with about 350,000 in the fossil fuel industry, of which 32,000 are in coal. So you can see why Obama and Biden have actually invested in the green economy, because that's where all the growth in jobs is. But we have to think about it. We are seeing exponential growth in solar, in wind, and other renewable energy. We're seeing exponential growth in EVs. Interesting fact, in China last year, 26% of all cars sold were electric. Battery technology is improving, but there's a problem. And this is where the disconnect is. We have currently 90% of the world's GDP under a pledge of net zero. Now, some of it is 2050, like the EU and the USA, China's 2060, and India 2070. But it's 90% of the world's economy. The problem is to do that, we will have to actually increase the production of renewables fivefold. 
So even though it's exponential now, we actually need to increase it fivefold and bring as many innovations as we can. And at the same time, we then have to look at the natural environment to see how much we can then expand reforestation and rewilding. So the problem is we're doing really well and there's lots of positive news stories out there, but it's nowhere near quick enough. If you imagine we're having to do things five times faster than we're already doing. And the reason being is because 80% of the world's energy today is from fossil fuels. All that fantastic new energy, renewable energy is just eating up the increase. And if you want one fact to take away from this podcast, the fact is by 2050, we will have to double or triple energy supply for the world. So that means we have to produce 180% to 280% of today's energy as clean, renewable energy. That is the challenge of this century. Quite a challenge. Um, um, Malin uh, Pinsky um, uh, studies oceans. Uh, um, associate professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and Rutgers School of Environmental and Biological Sciences. Um, uh, and you focus on the adaptation or the attempt to uh, uh, adapt of ocean life to climate change. Um, and we, we read a lot about uh, the pace with which the oceans are warming and the changes that are happening. Um, sort of following um, on, on on Mark's points, uh, is, 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 is this happening fast enough? Are we responding anywhere near fast enough, uh, um, uh, given the pace with which things seem to be changing in the natural system? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad the ocean's going to be part of this discussion as, as well. It's actually the oceans absorb more than 90% of the excess heat from uh, anthropogenic climate change. So they're really a key key sponge in many ways in the earth systems and a key part of how we think about both mitigation and, and adaptation. And in terms of the impacts of climate change, it's also where uh, impacts on ecosystems and the natural environment and species are happening much faster actually than they're happening on land. Species are moving towards the poles and towards deeper depths about five times faster in the ocean than they are on land. And that has created uh, many challenges. I mean, everything from disrupting fisheries and coastal economies to even sparking uh, international trade wars and, and conflict. So it, it spills over quite a bit beyond just the immediate resources. And I think at the same time, you know, where the conversation here is about green growth, but there's also blue growth. And uh, that's a, a growing discussion, and I think needs to be a, a bigger part of the conversation. Um, the oceans cover 70% of the Earth's surface, and technology has made the resources in the ocean recently much more accessible than they have been. You know, we have fishing boats traveling all the, all the way around, around the world, staying out for many months or even, even longer. And deep sea mining now becoming part of the part of the conversation, technologically possible, and also increasingly um, potentially an important source of uh, rare minerals for for batteries and other renewable technologies. So, um, how we continue to grow uh, our use of the oceans, we have this opportunity, and I think an incredibly important opportunity to do it now in a sustainable way. Um, offshore wind also incredibly important, and just within the U.S., expected to have about a hundred billion dollars of new investment over the coming decade. So, really key part of how we transition to a low carbon economy. One of the things we want to talk about uh, today is is uh, we've sort of laid out a lot of the the the, the issues and quite a quite a vast array of those issues um, facing us. But really about the response and the, our capacity uh, to respond, um, whether that's the role of governments or or businesses um, uh, uh, or even um, individuals. Um, um, Peter Kalmus uh, is uh, a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, um, where his technical work involves uh, using satellite data and models to study uh, the rapidly changing Earth. Um, um published a, a large number of technical um articles but but uh probably best known for your work uh, or your your advocacy um of the role of individuals um 
in reducing our carbon footprints, um, uh, uh, including a book called Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. Um, as you look at this, um, uh, Peter, what is the role of of individuals, and if you if you care to comment as well, in in the context of governments and other actors in the system. Yeah, sure. So I'll start by saying that I'm speaking on my own behalf, and also as a climate scientist, uh, I can't mince words anymore because I'm terrified by the breadth and the scope and the depth of all of the changes occurring on the Earth system right now. So um, uh, like Mellon, I also think about the oceans. I have a paper on projections of coral reef severe bleaching. I think in the next few years, we're, uh, we're poised to see absolutely devastating mortality of coral reefs around the world. Um, I projected that uh, in all but the highest mitigation climate scenario, basically there will be essentially no coral reefs after uh, mid-century. I think right now I feel kind of embarrassed by I think it's probably going to be sooner than that, um, although mid-century is what most of the other projection studies are saying as well. Um, so I, I do believe that we are on currently a pathway to lose essentially everything. Um, I also study extreme heat, which is, I think, going to take everyone by surprise in the next few years uh, with or, or next decade in coming years uh, with its ferocity and its inescapability and its ability to completely undermine and take down our infrastructure like uh, electrical grids, um, which will leave, uh, you know, regions of people without power and in kind of deadly humid heat conditions. So this is something that I don't think we've experienced as a species yet. Um, anyway, um, let's see. Um, we, I think when we think about green growth, and I'll, I'll talk about individuals and what they can do in, in a little bit, but when we think about green growth and growth in general, uh, there are some sectors which obviously need to expand, like Mark was talking about uh, green energy, for example. Um, but there's other sectors where we we need to contract as quickly as we can. So this crisis, this this heat, I call it a heat nightmare that we're currently in that we have to wake up from, um, is caused by the fossil fuel industry. That industry has to contract as quickly as possible. And it's a zero sum thing. The longer that contraction takes, the more we irreversibly lose on planet Earth um, and the more basically uninhabitability uninhabitability we lock in, especially in the tropics, as severe humid heat gets worse and worse. Um, <clears throat> we uh, to go back to what R Robert was saying, we can't just go to a regime of green growth with less emissions. We have to literally go to zero emissions as quickly as we can. Um, and then to uh, underline what Karen was saying earlier, and I, I agree with literally every word she said, um, COP28 has been grossly uh, undermined and co-opted by the fossil fuel industry. So it's not just a threat. Uh, of the of the like credibility crisis and that the the fossil fuel industry is trying to kind of slow action. Uh, we've known for many there's there's a paper trail that they've been doing everything they can since about the 1970s to spread disinformation. They've colluded very intentionally, hired the best PR reps on the planet, spread disinformation. They've changed laws and ensured that they can uh, essentially legally bribe politicians and policymakers. Uh, which is why I say like we're we're currently on a path to lose everything. Globally, emissions are still increasing because world leaders, uh, basically, in the sway of um, these fossil fuel interests, and also because the media hasn't been doing a good job explaining to the public what just what an emergency we're in. But climate scientists know there's a huge gap between what climate scientists know and what the public gets in terms of how much of an emergency we're in. So uh, this has led to make it very easy for politicians up until now, at least, to continue expanding fossil fuels, which goes completely against the science. And this includes Biden and uh, President Biden and pre uh, former President Obama, who famously bragged at Rice University, like all that gas and uh, oil expansion, that was me, people. He literally said that. And so that, so these, even the Democrats in the United States are still expanding fossil fuels essentially as fast as they can. The Willow Project just got approved in Alaska, Mountain Valley Pipeline, which, which, you know, Joe Manchin wants. But Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and, and most importantly, President Biden did everything they could to push through this completely unnecessary uh, 
fracked gas pipeline in Appalachia, right? So that's where we're at now. We're still expanding fossil fuels. Uh, science, nothing could be more clear from the science that we have to start ramping them down as quickly as possible. So that's why I say we're still on a path, despite the growth in renewables, globally society, we are still on a path towards losing everything because we're still expanding fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry, they're more open than ever before about their co-option, right? The 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 UAE and the uh, the president of COP28, like the whole COP, pro we desperately need international cooperation, but this COP process is just a joke now. Like I don't have, with the fossil fuel industry in charge, given their long history of bad faith negotiation, I have zero confidence that anything useful is gonna come out of COP28. I'll be very surprised if something useful does. It's going to be all about carbon capture and planting trees and all of these distractions, putting iron in the uh, you know ocean, all of this technological distraction, which is also pushed by the New York Times, by the way, that allows the public to kind of continue thinking that we're not in an emergency. So then that takes me to individuals. The most important thing they can do is become climate activists. I think that uh, right now, um, you know, even civil disobedience, I've been arrested multiple times myself, uh, which has done more to a lot more to raise urgency than my book did. <laughs> but by the way, as much as I, I love my book. Um, so so reducing one's own emissions can help you feel better and feel less guilty. And that's really important because a lot of people out there are feeling climate despair and climate grief and climate anxiety. So so I think that a few good ways to deal with those those big, hard climate emotions one is to use less fossil fuels, but that don't have any, um, don't don't think for a minute that that's going to solve this problem. The thing you can do as an individual to contribute to solving this problem, since our policymakers are corrupted by the fossil fuel industry, is to be a climate activist, to express the emotions that you feel publicly, possibly to engage in civil disobedience, civil disobedience certainly to start using your creativity to change the institutions that you're involved with and to kind of reach the emotions, um, to kind of do that emotional processing and do that with the people that are around you because there's such a huge gap right now between what the public thinks <laughs> where, where we're at and, and what sort of climate science says where we're at. And I think the summer of 2023 and September of 2023 being as hot as you know typical July from the last few years, we're just, it feels like we're in this period of of kind of a new phase, a new a new phase of climate uh, breakdown that is just terrifying, and um, and I don't think uh, the climate science community fully understands uh, what that means in terms of the Earth system and acceleration of heating. Uh, we're still trying to figure that out, but I think most of us feel really caught off guard. <clears throat> so we'll come back to the, a lot of the political questions you put on the table, but nice segue to. Um, uh, to Allison Agston, um, uh, 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 I'll ask you about the role of communication, uh, uh, climate communication. And there's, uh, 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 Allison Agston is the inaugural director of the USC, uh, University of Southern California, Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism and Communication, uh, and serves as the USA, uh, USC, rather, Wrigley Institute for Environmental Studies first curator, actually, a background in and uh, I think in 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 uh, curation uh, in in museum settings, um, um, Alice, as you listened to just, uh, uh, just uh, hearing from Peter about uh, the gap between what the science community knows and what the public knows, um, how big is that gap? Uh, how big a problem? What can we do about that? Yeah, I really feel Peter's frustration with this. There are about 50,000 scientific journal articles published each year about climate science, and maybe 10% of those see the light of day outside of academia and the news media. But here's the thing. We want to talk about a lot about investment in green technologies, but where is the conversation about investing in journalism and communication support for people who get the word out? It's sort of like if, uh, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, but nobody's there, you know, uh, so I I'm excited by initiatives like what American Journalism Project and others are doing. But look, we are seeing a serious contraction in newsrooms at a moment when we need expansion. 
What is good news is that I'm also observing huge growth in terms of climate journalism. So since this time last year, the AP has doubled the size of its climate coverage. Just last week, my local paper in LA Times reorganized its climate unit. This is all great news. What I would personally love to see is that climate is a story that every journalist covers. I would love to see that climate is a story that a sports reporter knows how to write about, a fashion journalist knows how to write about. I'd love to see it integrated uh, across the board so that we're reaching audiences who might not hear about it, might be super not be super engaged with it otherwise. So I, I think this is an area, you want to talk about an area for potential growth. There is huge opportunity here and we desperately need it. Well, great. Well, we have a lot of issues on the table here. Uh, let me just try to pick up on some of them and, and invite uh, a kind of uh, cross talk and, and communication and, and, and uh, amongst ourselves about them. Um, uh, let me just pick up on, on uh, several of you made the point um, and as if, you know, we, we surely the nature is already making the point for us that this is a crisis and that things are, are, um, uh, he, the oceans are heating, the planet is heating, et cetera, um, at a tremendous pace. And, um, Mark, you made the, you know, the point that, you know, as fast as things may be happening, um, in terms of, uh, technology, it's not happening, uh, at the pace that we need, um, that if we have to if have five times as much. And so let me, let me ask about, um, our capacity to get from here to there. Um, a lot of big focus on kind of electrifying everything and uh, a policy focus in that space. And there's some, there's, there's some trade-offs and highly uh, people who focused, of course, on the problem of rare earths that we need for, for batteries uh, and the un unintended side effects um, uh, uh, of, of mining for those as well as the bottlenecks that might occur. You've written about the shortage of sulfur, which is, uh, is fascinating. And so something I hadn't uh, thought about before, but what are, and then I'm going to come back to sort of the policy question of how we, if part of the solution is to move faster in that space, what are the barriers to doing that? Um, and, and how do we, uh, how do we uh, catalyze a faster change? Um, so I think the first barrier is politics. Uh, we have a bunch of politicians in many countries that sort of accept that climate change is happening, but they don't see the reality. And I think what's really upsetting uh, is that they don't see all the opportunities. So, for example, in my own country, the United Kingdom, uh, our price of gas has gone through the roof. We have a life, uh, we have a huge cost of living crisis, and the government seems to want to blame it on green tariffs and net zero. Whereas actually, the truth is, it's because of volatile fossil fuel prices around the world. And the really, and this is where I share Peter's frustration. The really frustrating thing is, if they had ten years ago instigated a full renewables program. Our energy would be cheap, secure, people would have reliable energy at a reliable, cheap price. But they don't see that because, and I have to say, Al Gore said uh, very recently, and I thought this was a classic quote of him, and I really wish I'd thought of it, which was the um, politicians seem to be much uh, the oil companies seem to be much better at capturing politicians than they do at capturing carbon from the atmosphere. Um, so I think first we need to actually deal with politics. So we need to actually go and actually protest. We need to use our vote. We need to change the politics. We need governments that are going to use all the wonderful tools they have, taxation, incentives, regulation, leadership to actually change. Because again, the International Energy Authority last week said that one and a half degrees is still possible if we invest all the money in energy that we do every single year in renewables. So we're not talking about higher costs. We're not talking about finding more money. We're just saying, take the money, about two trillion per year in energy and move it into sort of like 
renewables. Simple switch. And again, they're also then driving home the fact that the way we use energy, without energy efficiency, we're not going to make it. So firstly, it is always politics, politics, politics. And then we can start to drive the economy. Peter's got his hand up. <laughs> and the economist. Yay! Okay. Robert as well. Um, fantastic. Yeah. So um, I want to start with uh, uh, Robert because uh, you, you talked about the, the costs and, uh, of yeah. doing this and Mark sort of suggesting it might not be so costly. So how, so, how do you think about that? So Mark, Mark is on target in terms of, of uh, raising the issue that what's what's critical is, is fossil fuel emissions. If we weren't burning fossil fuels, then we wouldn't be having a big problem with climate change. But the, the thing that he's not quite grasping is, is that to switch instantaneously from fossil fuels, from a gigantic infrastructure to, to a brand new infrastructure, takes a vast amount of resources. And it, it can't be done overnight. Even if you wanted to do it overnight, it just can't be done overnight. You just We just don't have the resources to do that. And that's one of the reasons why politicians are very slow to act. But one of the things I do want to reemphasize in case Mark was wondering whether I was defending the market, the market is uh, uber roundy. It's always going to make the right choice. The, the market is not going to solve this problem. If, if you leave it to the market, they're going to continue to burn fossil fuels. The market cannot control things like a global pollutant. You, you, you do absolutely need to have a government response. The only thing that's going to control greenhouse gases is a government response. And what makes greenhouse gases particularly difficult, as opposed to getting rid of, for example, sulfur dioxide, is that this is a global problem. So that this isn't up to one government, one country. This is the whole, the whole world has to coordinate on this. And the place we have failed over the last 30 years is, is not that the oil companies are still existing. Where we have failed is we failed to coordinate amongst national governments into a, a global plan that actually will get us from here to net zero. There is no plan on, on the books that people are intending to follow. And it's, it's that absence of a global response, a, a global government response. That is at the heart of this problem. And until we change that, this problem is not going to get any better. We're going to be playing on the edges, making small little improvements here and there with technical change. But this fundamental issue of why are we still so fossil fuel dependent is because we do not have that government response. And partly that's politicians, but it more basically, it's a lack of public will to do this. So somehow or another, climate activists have not convinced the global population to make the sacrifices they're going to have to make. Well, I'm sorry, Robert, I'm going to push back against that because at the moment we know that renewables are cheaper, okay? They're easier to install, they're safer, and they're easier to maintain. They cause a lot less pollution than the fossil fuel industry, okay? If we did that also, 40% of all shipping would disappear overnight because we don't need to move all that fossil fuel around the world. But the key problem is fossil fuel subsidies. It's about $1 trillion spent every year by governments, our taxpayers' money, on fossil fuel companies to pollute the atmosphere. So it's not the public, because if the public actually knew how much of their money from their wallet was going to the fossil fuel companies to pollute the atmosphere, and then my own government is actually saying, oh, now we're going to pay them to actually capture it with capture carbon capture and storage to suck it out. So if you look at the raw economics, if there was a level playing field, and I'm not a neoliberalist, but if there was just a pure playing field, we would be going renewables so much quicker. And that's why renewables are accelerating so quickly because they are so much cheaper. So I would argue it's back to governments and removing those subsidies. And we do need countries to actually have agreements. So let me let me back, let me follow up with that. You're absolutely right. It was a level playing field where greenhouse gases were being charged for the damage they cause would work. But that's not a level playing field in the sense that there's just no more subsidies at all. That, that's putting a tax on carbon emissions. And one of the things that governments have been unwilling to do is place that tax on carbon emissions that's anywhere near high enough to reflect, to get us to net zero by 2050. 
They just haven't been willing to make those sacrifices. And basically, you and I are in agreement, if they did, that that would in fact discourage fossil fuels and encourage renewables, and you could get to wherever you want to go by just making that tax high enough. But that hasn't happened. And that's, that, that's the lack of government action that I'm talking about. I'm going to let teach and other people come in because I disagree. Okay. Um, so first of all, um, you know, tax on carbon has been tried in a few places. For example, in, in France, there was a tax on petrol. And there was a working class revolt against that, uh, the Gilets Jaunes. And this will happen every time there's an actual tax. And, uh, you know, the the burden of the transition is placed on the working class. They'll say, like, we can't afford to go to work and put food on the table. This sucks. We're going to vote in somebody who reverses this and says climate change is a hoax. Uh, and so you can have something called a climate income. Um, sometimes it's called a carbon fee and dividend, where you put a price on carbon, but then you return that to the people and the working class comes out ahead. But so far, policymakers aren't interested in doing that. And I'm really glad that Robert also mentioned that governments of the world have zero plan plans to phase out fossil fuels, um, which means they have zero plan to deal, actually deal with climate change because fossil fuels is the cause. So um, they've allowed, uh, probably because they're in the sway of fossil, the fossil fuel industry, they have allowed this narrative of things like carbon capture, these distractions to deflect um, attention away from the actual cause, which is the fossil fuel industry and secondarily industrial animal agriculture at roughly like the 15% level, but the about 80% of the cause is from fossil fuels. And then to kind of like understand why we have these subsidies and why we can't have policies or we're not being given policies that protect the working class, which you would need to do in order to avoid having those policies be reversed, right? As soon as the next election cycle comes, um, why there is no plan to phase out fossil fuels, why world leaders still continue to to expand fossil fuels as quickly as they can, uh, and why this, this whole narrative of green growth is so sort of... Uh, entrenched to begin with, I think you have to take a little step back and look back to the last few hundred years with the rise of what I call colonial extractivist capitalism. Um, so where we're at now and, and the kind of billionaires who control things behind the scenes, um, the CEOs and the owners, uh, the big investors, the financiers that actually kind of pull the strings on the politicians, a lot of their fortunes were actually made off the backs, uh, literally off the backs of indigenous people and black people through genocide and sort of enclosure and chattel slavery. Um, and so there's a direct line from that colonial extractivist mentality to where we are now. And the, the, the kind of power structures of our society um, are still there in that sort of extractive, sort of like, we want more profit, um, we want more growth, your know, growth is good, growth will trickle down, all of these narratives that we have. And the people in charge haven't been willing to say like, oh, like the, look at the wealth, look at how the, first of all, look at how the wealth disparity has grown over the last 40 years, right? It's It's been kind of insane um, growth from, you know, wealth transfer from working class people to the ultra rich. And so the, those people in charge right now, they're also in charge of the media, a lot of the mainstream media, the narrative. So that's part of why um, the climate emergency isn't getting out to the public uh, in charge of the kind of political structures in charge of all the corporate structures. They have things sewn down pretty well and they don't seem willing to me to kind of say, oh, uh, to get out of this climate emergency, we have to rethink this sort of extractive, you know, we have this big pile of cash, which acts like a magnet for even more cash, whereas the working people basically are getting less and less. We have to reverse that and basically give some of our, we, we the rich, need to basically finance this transition away from fossil fuels on our back. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. We need to make sure that developing nations um, have a stake in this. Uh, otherwise, they're going to just say, like, you know, screw you, rich nations. We're going to keep building out fossil fuels as quickly as we can. So we have to, you know, think just within our own company, our own countries to protect the working class and also internationally. Um, and I don't know if we can do that until there's sort of a social shift, a social tipping point, uh, and, and kind of a realization that, um, first of all, this is an emergency, and second, that it has to do with the sort of extractive colonial uh, capitalism. 
We recently had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Michael Mann for a special episode of DSR. As an added bonus, we've included a brief segment of our conversation with Dr. Mann here. Dr. Mann shares the motivation behind his newest book and the many factors that led him to call it Our Fragile Moment. Um, now, you know, I, I thought it was kind of interesting, and I'm sure you thought it was kind of interesting, too, as I was going through the reviews and so forth of your book, and all of them said, excellent book, and all of them said it was balanced. Um, but, you know, some of them said, you know, the, 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 the news is good, because Michael Mann says that we can handle all the overheating of the climate we're getting. <laughs> and then some of them said the news is bad because Michael Mann said that might take several thousand years. And it was, <laughs> there was this apparent, you know, sort of people emphasized what they wanted to hear in it. Yeah, the veritable half, half uh, glass empty or half full, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, but it, I mean, I, I, I think it's fair to say that the message of the book is uh, that for the foreseeable future, if we don't change things around, the glass is more than half empty. And that's right. I wouldn't have named it our fragile moment if there weren't a fragility about the moment that we're in. And 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 there and that fragility exists for many reasons, but but uh, the climate crisis is paramount among them. Well, I, you couldn't have orchestrated um, uh, sort of global weather patterns better to lead into the you know. Uh, uh, publication of the book. I mean, this summer has been th- one horrific event after another that are all from fires to floods to ex- other extreme weather around yeah, the you world. Know, we deployed those space lasers, you know, expertly. Uh, yeah, to, well, to, th- but, well, I'm glad we got the credit from Marjorie Taylor Greene for doing that. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but um, do you see some of what we've seen on the on the on the climate front as a tipping point the beginning of a of a of a new uh chapter in this uh crisis and you mean a tipping point sort of in the public consciousness yeah. uh due yeah. to yeah you know it's it's interesting because there have been so many moments like that where we felt like well surely this must be that that tipping point in consciousness uh Superstorm Sandy, Katrina, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest heat dome uh, two summers ago, what we've seen happen in Maui. Um, One wonders what has to happen before we truly collectively awaken to uh, the the threat that we face. And frankly, the, the real reason we haven't yet risen to the challenge is because, as you know, there's some bad actors who have uh, been doing everything they can to keep us addicted to fossil fuels to prevent us from from moving on. And so that's the real problem. You know, back in the 1970s, in the early 1970s, when uh, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, and that sort of awakened a national consciousness about the threat of air and water pollution. And we actually had, you know, President Richard Nixon, Republican, who founded the EPA in in part uh, due to public concerns. It wasn't such a partisan political issue back then, and now it is, and, 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 and that's really the obstacle here. It seems like there's nothing that can happen that will convince some of those who have a vested interest to be willing to be part of the solution, which means that they remain a big part of the problem. Yeah, in fact, there's been a shift in American politics on this, um, you know, a, 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 over the course of the past century uh, or more, uh, a lot of the progress we've made on environmental issues has been led by Republicans, whether it was yeah. Teddy Roosevelt or Nixon, as you say, or George W. Bush. You know, they, they cared about the outdoors. They, you know, they, 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 in fact, that was sort of part of their DNA. Um, Who would have thought that conservatives would want to conserve? Yeah, you would, think, you would think that that was part of the identity, but we've entered into a period where it's become super binary and where it's not just we don't want environmental regulations any you know any pristine place that may exist on the earth we want to drill you know we want to prove we don't care um and that's not just trump or it's not just maga but it does seem on the right uh, not just by the way in the united states but worldwide that this yeah. is this has happened one of the people you point yeah. the finger to uh, at in 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 the book um, 
announced his retirement today, the day we're recording this, although people may hear it uh, a few days later, and that's Rupert Murdoch. Can you talk about what role you've seen him play in all this? Oh, yeah. He's you know one of a, a fairly small number of individuals who has almost single-handedly helped create the, the crisis moment that we're in now in the way that he weaponized uh, News Corp, uh, this global media empire, as a tool for the fossil fuel industry. Um, Saudi Arabia uh, was the second largest uh, stakeholder in News Corp uh, for a number of years until they were forced to, uh, to sell off their shares. Uh, but he has essentially used you know that that media empire he has used as a cudgel to discredit climate science um, to create doubt and confusion about the viability of alternative uh, renewable energy um, he has single-handedly helped slow the movement towards uh, you know away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. Uh, particularly here in the United States, uh, through Fox News, the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, um, the new the, the noise machine that he has created um, that has helped sort of align that entire party, uh, the entire Republican Party and the party faithful. Um, yeah, they've absorbed it, you know, as you said, part of their DNA, it's part of their cultural identity now is to deny climate change for no good reason other than it's very convenient to the fossil fuel industry for them to do so. Yeah. But, and what, you know, it strikes me also interesting, and you talk about this in, in, in the book, is that this is not just a one-off of Rupert Murdoch in the United States. This is in his uh, sort of modus operandi, whether it's here or Australia or the UK. He's been promoting this wherever he controls media. Oh, yeah. I'm, and I actually experienced um the sort of Murdoch disinformation machine in in full, uh, you know, uh, in full deployment um, during what's come to be known as the Black Summer. Um, I was on sabbatical in Sydney, uh, late 2019, early 2020, uh, to work with scientists there looking at extreme weather events. And I arrived for perhaps the most profound example of climate change driven extreme weather when these wildfires spread out across the continent. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the entire country, it felt was ablaze and, um, and there was massive destruction and the near extinction of, uh, of koalas um, in New South Wales. Um, there was this level of consciousness that came out of that, but, the Murdoch media empire, which has an even greater stranglehold on Australia than they have in the United States. Murdoch uh, controls most of the print media um, and news channels in Australia. And he was using that to promote the usual disinformation that we've now seen here in the state. Oh, it's, you know, it's um, natural. It's due to arson. It's not due to the dry, you know, hot conditions that favor these extreme uh, wildfires. Uh, or it's due to, you know, uh, sort of improper forest management uh, practices. In fact, the disinformation got so bad that his own son, James Murdoch, called him out in the Australia media for promoting disinformation in the face of this, this national tragedy that Australia was experienced, um, a tragedy which was a direct consequence of the fossil fuel intensive pathway Rupert Murdoch has helped put us on. Yeah, unfortunately, his son, James, who may have a shred of decency somewhere in him, is not in charge. He's his, not the one who's going to, no. Nope. His son, Lachlan, is, and he doesn't seem to have a shred of decency. So, No, and that that is most unfortunate because it's sort of, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Um, Lachlan Murdoch will almost certainly... Uh, continue in the policies. Of, so it, it makes his retirement almost irrelevant because um, Lachlan will be taking them probably in the same direction. Another interesting phenomenon that relates to this, and and I, I'm obviously, as somebody who comes in, out of both policy world and the media world, interested in the intersection, and you, you talk about it, and this is an area that you study, but it's the, you know, it's the way one hand washes the other. You know, uh, we had MBS on Fox News just the other day. Um, and it was really, I mean, I found it 
nauseating on many levels to, to begin with the fact that he was there uh, and that his reputation was being sort of cleaned up by Fox. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, he, he, he was very bald faced about um, a number of ways that he is spinning all of this and, you know, the desire that, you know, I mean, the, their main business, of course, is petrochemical, the oil business. Um, uh, on the one hand, he said, you know, Jared Kushner can keep the $2 billion I gave him no matter what happens, um, which is one of the most astonishing displays of public corruption I've ever seen. And it's then, remarkable, isn't it? and yeah. well, it's remarkable that he's able to, 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 to do it. And the other end, when, when, when Hunter Biden is being, you know, uh, you know, held uh, to, I, I mean, is, 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 is now under investigation for charges that would normally not be, um, you know, not lead to prosecution for anybody else. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Well, exactly. But the other thing, and, and this is just an interesting phenomenon in the context of how does the oil industry get away with it, is he said, well, if I can sports wash and, you know, that, that you know, it produces GDP growth for me, then I'm going to keep sports washing. And, and a lot of these states in, in, in that part of the world, you know, Qatar hosted the World Cup, et cetera, et cetera, they just seem to distract the world from what they're doing by saying, look over here and not over here. Yeah, it's disturbing. And they're not held, uh, you know, uh, to uh, any reasonable standard uh, when it comes to the conduct uh, that we're talking about. I mean, you can count on the fingers of your hands, you know, the, the number of bad actors um, and bad players who have almost single-handedly put us where we are with respect to the climate crisis. It's MBS, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's um, uh, Vladimir Putin, it's, of course, uh, Murdoch uh, through his media empire, it's, you know, the Koch brothers or the remaining Koch brother, uh, Charles Koch, um, Robert Mercer, Elon Musk. Um, it's the, all of the usual suspects who, in one way or another, have created the existing power structure that keeps us addicted to fossil fuels when we know it's essentially destroying our civilization. Well, yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, it's the ghost of John D. Rockefeller and, and Standard Oil and then the Seven Sisters, and they continue to cr control everything. And, you know, I, I've, I've, I've never... Out. Go on. The Rockefeller Brothers Foundation is quite enlightened. I think they feel responsibility for that, and they have actually helped lead the fossil fuel divestment movement. So, <laughs> there, I believe in redemption. You know, if if the if, if those who represent the legacy of these, um, you know, the fossil fuel interests were to come down on the right side rather than just engage in greenwash, then it would be appropriate for us to embrace them. But by and large, that's not what's happening. Right, and and you know, Exxon for years. Um, suppressed information on this stuff, sold a different story, uh, and yet somehow because of their political power has never paid the price for that that, say, the tobacco right. companies did. I mean, it's remarkable. If you look at, you've probably seen the uh, leaked documents. Uh, 1982, uh, Exxon had this internal report uh, by their own science division. They had a team of scientists making projections of future warming based on business as usual uh, assumptions about fossil fuel burning. And their predictions were right on the mark. They predicted, they predicted exactly how much warming we would experience by now. And moreover, their scientists referred to the potential consequences. And these aren't the words of Al Gore or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is ExxonMobil's own scientists. They referred to the consequences of that warming as catastrophic. And what did they do? They buried that report, they fired, they got rid of that group um, and engaged in the world's greatest, you know, most well-funded disinformation campaign, the fossil fuel industry disinformation campaign. But it's a crime against humanity, right? I mean, it, it really is. It's worse than that. It's, worse, it's a crime against the planet. Yeah, well, true, true. But, I, you know, I, I think of it, when I was saying crime against humanity, yeah. Hundreds of thousands of people have died. Yeah. Uh, millions of people yeah. have been impoverished. The planet has lost trillions of dollars in resources that can't be replaced. 
No, it's right. It's tr- it's certainly a crime against humanity, and and I argue it goes even one step further. It, it's a crime against the entire planet, um, not just us, but every other living thing um, on this planet. So yeah, I mean, and of course the the book um, the book gets into that a little bit, as you note in the last chapter. Um, but it's also really about the lessons that we can learn about where we are. This sort of fragile moment between you know, this sort of tussle between resilience and the climate system does exhibit some resilience, but there's also fragility. You push it too hard. And that's what history tells us. If you push the system too hard, you can get these sort of runaway consequences. And and that's, that's a possible future if we don't act quickly. And the main obstacle to that, as you know, it's not physical, it's not physics, it's not climate physics, it's not the technology. We've got the technology to decarbonize our economy. It's entirely political. This special Road to COP28 podcast was produced by the DSR Network, which is solely responsible for its content. Roundtable discussions were recorded live as they happened. The series was sponsored in part by a grant from the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, hosts of the COP28 meetings, to take place later this year. However, the content of this discussion, like all DSR Network productions, is entirely editorially independent, and the views presented were solely those of the participants. The executive producer of this podcast was Chris Kotmar. The producer of this podcast was Riley Fessler. This has been a DSR Network production.